ships are down. Her over, the Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Solar Lottery, solar lottery focusing on chapters 4 and 6. Um, I'm not going to go back over the themes and the events of the first three chapters of the book. For that, just go to the previous episode on Solar Lottery and you'll, you'll get that there. But um, just a quick refresher. This is a world uh, set in the future where malevolence has been purged out of the system by replacing it with a randomness and a random chance. Um, the major themes of, of the novel are randomness, the economy, the capitalist economy, which is in theory based on effort and skill and how well you can trick other people. That's been replaced with kind of a feudal economy where people sign, not signs the wrong word, but um, accept feudal oaths with one another. And so the kind of the, we're reminded of the randomness of the feudal system. You're born a serf, you're born a noble on the chance of blood. In this world, you have randomness of whether you're going to be a classified or an unclassified or an unk, unk. Um, so that, that's kind of the setting. Um, now, the novel quickly enters into high politics. And in the first three chapters, we, we learn a lot about the political system and the political changes that are going on in the world um, at the moment that the novel begins. But if you want to know more, go back and listen to the first episode on that. Um, this, so in chapter four, uh, we're introduced, actually chapters four through six are all about Ted Bentley. Um, we don't get our other major character, Cartwright, who has been recently chosen uh, to be Quizmaster. Um, and, and so we get Ted, th these chapters are all about Ted Bentley, um, who is, I guess, our hero, our main character. Um, he, as chapter four opens, we find Ted Bentley with his friends, um, Laura and Al Davis, and they're discussing the situation. And what we learn in this chapter is mostly about the different positions of the unks, the unclassified versus the classified. So Al and Laura Davis are classifieds like like Ted Bentley. So they're kind of of the upper class. So we have a situation here of the upper class kind of sitting and talking about the lower class a lot. Um, you know, we don't really get yet much of a window into the lower class. We have Carthrith, who's, who's an unclassified, but he's not really fully of, of the poorest of, of the underclass. He, he seemed to have jobs from time to time. Uh, one thing we learn is that they eat very different diets. Um, there's a kind of a algae mesh that people eat uh, called protein. Um, which is kind of the main food for the unclassifieds. And they talked about how, you know, they didn't eat it. Quote, if it wasn't for the protein, the unks would have starved to death back in the 20th century. End quote. Protein isn't a natural algae. It's a mutant that started out in the culture tanks of the Mideast and gradually crept out in a variety of freshwater surfaces. So it's kind of a newly introduced sort of algae kind of creature. Kind of thing. Not a natural one. Not, not from Earth. Um, Another thing we learn, for instance, is that the unks watch TV while the classifieds don't really waste their time doing that. Uh, quote, on the TV, glorious ads plays back and forth like liquid fire. One after another they rose, hung for an instance, and then they dropped away. Ads were the highest art form. The finest creative talent was at work behind them. Ads combined color, balance, rhythm, and a restless aliveness that pulsed from the screen and into the cozy Davis living room. From hidden hi-fi speakers mounted on the walls, random combinations of accompanying sound drifted. Right. All right. So yeah. So the the classifieds will watch some TV, but they watch different TV. That's 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 what it is. 
right? Uh, channel one, one channel. It's called one channel, one dash channel. Yeah, that's the channel that the unks watch, which has all kind of the vulgar um, distractions of, of television. What the Davises watch is more like news, right? They follow the happenings of the convention, which is choosing the assassin who's going to take down the 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 new quizmaster. And as all discussed in the previous episode, if you want to to know more about that, we also learned that there are work camps for unks, for the unemployed, for the vagrants. Um, now, I, I talk about about in the previous chapter how there's this problem of of consumption and versus production. The problem of production of the 19th century was replaced with the problem of consumption. Who's going to consume what the machine can make? They don't have as you know that was resolved in the 19th century by forcing people to work. Right? If you don't work, you're going to starve. So that's how we get production. And we need people to produce. The question of consumption becomes more complicated really starting in the mid-20th century with the Great Depression, where you had plenty of production, but you didn't have enough jobs for, for people. And so you needed kind of the government to come in and find ways to manage uh, production. And that's kind of the, the culture that Dick's coming out of and the problem he's thinking about. And in our time, we're certainly going to think more and more about this with automation, uh, growing global unemployment, and certainly the decrease of kind of good manufacturing jobs that people can kind of base a family on. You know, how are you going to first get people to work when there aren't good jobs available for people? And second, how are you going to make sure that there's consumer base for those um, products? Well, one way that's solved here is through um, is labor camps. Um, we learn a lot about the, the life situation of the unks just from these rich people, these classifiers talking about it. Um, a lot of places that used to be good are being taken over by unks, Al observed. They're moving everywhere, Laura agreed. Ted, remember that wonderful area near the synthetics research lab? All those new housing units, those green and pink buildings? Unks are living there. And naturally, it's all run down and dirty and bad smelling. It's a disgrace. Why don't they sign up for the work camps? That's where they belong, not loafing around here. Um, and so we got the classifieds obsessed with kind of the work ethic at a time when the work ethic clearly is not... Um, needed right the reason the unks are moving into these housing complexes is that the housing complexes are empty and have space right obviously if classifieds were needed them or were living in them you wouldn't have the space for the unks to move in so we have a post-scarcity situation which is something philip k dick is very very much interested in and explores from many different angles in his work um, but you know we have uh, the ruling class assuming the work ethic is still valid at a time it's not which i, I think is our our world too um, they discussed the fealty oath that Bentley took to Varick, and Bentley is quite upset about this. He feels he's been tricked into taking an individual oath when he wanted to take an oath to the position of Quizmaster. Um, on the TV, in the background, uh, they're watching the news, and they learn that the new Quizmaster's effort to get security is going on. He's trying to purge some of the security apparatus in hopes of getting that whole house in order so he can fight against the assassin. Um, and at the end of the chapter, we learn that an assassin has indeed been chosen, a man named Keith Pellick, and he's going to be the assassin who will target the quiz master. This chapter also gives us a little bit about the gender division of labor um, and the gender division in the society. It's a rather unfortunate one, and I don't know if this is uh, Dick's commentary in the 1950s or not. Um, one result, one, one social reality of the 1950s was... Uh, partially due to 
the growth of suburbia, partially due to the growth of kind of good middle class jobs, mostly for men, factory jobs, strong unions, all the stuff that kept pay, would pay high, was a lot of families could get by without um, women in the workforce. And this led to a return of, of women to the home after uh, a period of time in which women were more active in the workforce, especially during the Second World War. Uh, kind of the, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, the show, um, June Cleaver, right? The, there's um, the June Cleaver model the, uh, for that was so popular from 1950s sitcoms. It seems that the world of Solar Lottery is in a kind of crude reflection of 1950s gender relations, right? Quote, when you were a boy, didn't you dream of growing up to be a successful assassin? Laura's brown eyes were dim with nostalgia. I remember how I hated being a girl because then I couldn't be an assassin when I grew up. I bought a lot of charms, but they, they didn't turn me into a boy, end quote. So one of the most important jobs in society is closed off to women um, by apparently declaration. Women can't be assassins. Now, there are women in the workforce. We meet some of them um, here. But at least in this element, um, women aren't really welcomed. Okay, chapter five. Chapter five is chapter five and six are a little bit more plot heavy. Heavy four is really a good window into the class dynamics of of this world. But chapters five and six are a little bit more plot heavy. Bentley wakes up the next day and is finds he's called before Varric. He meets Eleanor, one of the other people pledged to Varric, um, and kind of the romantic interest of the novel for for Bentley. And she basically tells him that there will be a party to celebrate the choosing of assassin. And he's required to be there uh, to meet with Varric, to discuss things with him, and to be introduced to Peleg and other things. So there's a kind of a function for this party. But that's, that's essentially what goes on in chapters 5 and 6 is this big party. Um, Varric wants to introduce Bentley to Peleg the assassin. And we get a description of Peleg when he is introduced uh, to him. Quote, Peleg said nothing. His hair was straight, yellow, moist, and limply combed. His features were uncertain, almost nondescript. He was a colorless, silent person, almost lost from sight, as the rolling giant beside him propelled him among the artly watching couples. After a moment or two of them, after, after a moment, the two of them were swallowed up by satin slacks and floor-length gowns, and the buzz of anime conversation around Bentley resumed. End quote. So he gets distracted, and he can't really study Bentley more. But so... Or Peleg, sorry, you can't really study Peleg more. So Peleg is our cold-hearted assassin, and when we first meet him, that's what we think about him, right? Uh, you know, kind of, kind of the image of um, someone cold, heartless, brutal, willing to do the job, right? Not one for talking, not one for partying, just just um, does what he has to do. Now, Eleanor uh, talks about how she lost her telepathic powers when Varric lost his position as Quizmaster. And we get an interesting kind of background into the nature of telepathic powers. We already know telepathy is a very important theme in this novel because it's crucial to the security state for the Quizmaster. Really, that's what really makes or breaks a Quizmaster in this world, is whether they can get their telepathic defense network set up in time. If they can't, they're going to be assassinated. If they can, they usually can, can endure. Um, Eleanor was um, one of these telepaths, but she lost her powers, right? So Bentley asked, like, why would you lose it? Why would you purposely lose it when you were born with such a unique gift? And she says, well, you sound like Wakeman. If I had stayed with the core, I would have had to use my power against Reese, 
Varric. So what else could I do but leave? You know, it's really gone. It's like being blinded. I screamed and cried a long time afterwards. I couldn't face it. I broke down com completely. Well, how are you now? She gestured shakily. I'll live. Anyways, I can't get it back. So forget it, darling. Drink your drink and relax. Um, it's called Methane Gale. I suppose Callisto has a methane atmosphere. So we learned that telepathic power is something that's lost. It's something that's also monopolized by the Quizmaster. So if you want to leave the surface of the Quizmaster, you have to lose your telepathic powers. So there's some control over this ability. Kind of the same way in, I guess, in Battlestar Galactica. Not Battlestar Galactica, what is it? Babylon 5, you have the control of tele telepathic powers. So in a sense, we have post-humans here. She discusses how uh, telepathic powers come from as well. She says she didn't get it off Earth. She's never been off Earth. Quote, I was born in San Francisco 19 years ago. All telepaths come from there, remember. During the final war, the big research installations in Livymore were hit by a Soviet missile. Those who survived were badly bathed. We're all descended from one family, Earl and Verna Phillips. The whole corps is related. I was trained for it all the time I was growing up. My destiny. End quote. So it's clear that these people are post-human, and they're very—they're a Dickian kind of post-human, um, which is something. If you go up to the stories, I'll be talking about his stories that cover his early ideas on post-humanism. It comes up a lot in the novels. You have precognition is a big theme in there. It seems, in his view, that this emerges out of out of environmental change, particularly um, nuclear war of some sort. Right, so um, we'll say more about posthumans um, in other episodes. Dick's basic view of posthumans is that they're not really human anymore. Um, I don't know if he's quite there yet because Eleanor seems to have her humanity intact, and the other types in this book have it. But when we start to look at his, especially his um, short stories about posthumans, they really emphasize the the unhumanity of the posthumans. In this sense, they're a really interesting parallel to his robot, to his android. Um, what else goes on in this chapter? Um, we have a music robot playing. It's just a brief mention, but we get another piece of evidence that we're in a very post-scarcity world where there's a lot of automation. The robot is not just playing music, but I believe he's composing the music. Um, as the night goes on, Varric begins to start to complain about the system, and we learn more about his political agenda. We learn that Varric, although he was Quizmaster for a long time, actually is disgusted with the entire system of Minimax and randomness, and he wants to overturn it. Uh, he's not really drunk here. It's not that you don't get the sense that he's drunk. He's just uh, with his allies, with his colleagues, with the people who have swore oaths to him. Actually, not uh, colleagues is the wrong word. These are the people. These are his serfs. But he feels he's able to talk to them pretty openly. This is quoting Varric. All the same, this damn bottle throws a man out for no reason and elevates an ass, a crackpot. Picked at random without regard to his ability or class. There's nothing random in this random twitching. How can random machinery be rational? We're all a bunch of superstitious fools. Everyone's trying to read signs and harbingers. Everyone's trying to explain two-headed calves and flocks of white crows. We're all dependent on a random chance. We're losing control because we can't plan. And he goes on with this kind of complaint. He doesn't want to be subject to this randomness anymore. He wants to have control over his life. Now, the person talking to him during this time is Moore. Moore is, uh, we learned from a previous chapter, actually a big believer in this system. And he's the guy who sort of trolls Cartwright, comes to him and says, well, we're going to get you. Uh, you're going to be killed. That's the way the system works. So enjoy being Quizmaster while you can, but you won't be there long. We find out he's a big believer in it. And 
He tries to argue that no, randomness is the most rational system that can, can be come up with. Quote, the random factor is a function of an overall rational pattern. In the face of random twitches, no one can have a strategy. It forces everyone to accept a randomized method. Best analysis of the statistical possibilities in certain events, plus a pessimistic assumption that any plans will be found out in advance. Assuming you're found out in advance frees you of the danger of being discovered. If you act randomly, your opponent can find out nothing about you because even you don't know what you're going to do. Skill is a function of chance. It's an intuitive best use of chance situations. And then he complains to Varric, you're so goddamn old, you've been in this enough situations to know the pragmatic. So this is the debate going on, and we find out that Varric is just upset about the whole system, and he has an agenda of undoing it. And so it's not just about getting back into the position of Quizmaster. He has a broader goal, it seems. Um, we also find in this chapter that Moore is a bit upset about bringing in... Um, Bentley, he first thinks we don't need any more of, of that rank, and he thinks that he's kind of an outsider and a bit of a loser, the fact that he lost his job, lost his um, position at Osfilir, um, shows that he's not really that effective, and that's another point of, of battle between Moore and, and Varric. So that kind of does it for Chapter 5. Chapter 6. So Chapter 6, uh, we see Varric leaving the party, but Herb and Moore hanging out and drinking and enjoying themselves. And Moore specifically gives Bentley a little bit more time to be introduced to, to Pelleg. Um, and Moore is very much impressed with Pelleg for Moore thinks Pelleg is the, the great assassin and uh, something he's very proud of, a person he's very proud of finding. He actually, actually here he calls him the greatest discovery since the wheel. Um, so although Moore is a bit hostile to to Bentley, Moore is willing to show him around. Um, Bentley tries to talk to him, and he questions him about his kind of career choices. He says, Peleg, how does it feel to be a professional killer? You don't look like a professional killer. You don't look like anything at all, not even a man, certainly not a human being. They try to get Peleg to party with them, but, but Peleg is just sort of vacant and empty. Um, and Varric reveals himself again and says, the party's over. Right. Bentley, at this point, very strangely, in, in my view, makes a big scene directly questioning Varric on the use of an assassin. Um, I believe he's probably a little bit drunk here, um, and that's why he's making this scene. But he's, he's basically questioning why Varric doesn't want to try to kill um, Cartwright himself, why he uses an assassin, why he uses someone else to do his, um, do his job for him. Eleanor tries to defuse his situation, but Bentley sort of loses control of his reality for, for a moment. And the way it's worded, it's, it's a bit odd what happens here. Um, Abruptly, Eleanor vanished and he was alone. He felt his way through a haze of remote movements and wavering shapes. Once he crashed violently against something, a hail of shattered objects cascaded around him. Stunned, he blundered away off again and stood foolishly. And so he kind of sort of loses his... Uh, his focus of reality is something Dick is very good at and describes a lot in his, his novels here. It's, it's not quite clear if he's just getting increasingly drunk, um, but he bumps into her more and he gets in a fight with them. They actually get in a fist fight. Eleanor gets him out of that fight and eventually they have sex. 
Uh, he wakes up later, and the party remnants kind of surround him. So you got this image of all these kind of drunk, passed out people, and the bottles, and all the junk of the party, uh, kind of the, the big hangover situation. He stands up, and he runs into Varric, um, and Varric reveals to him that he is Peleg the Assassin. And Bentley is very confused at this revelation that he is Peleg um, the Assassin. And so we end up kind of have a cliffhanger ending here, and we'll resolve this in, in the next episode, of course. Um, so just to recap, most of these four chapters are about Bentley. Uh, we find he resents his job. We find he doesn't like the fact that he feels tricked. He wanted to work for the Quizmaster, and now he's working for a, pri- uh, like a private citizen who he doesn't really agree with his motives and his methods, u- the use of an assassin. We find out that there's a lot of tensions within Varric's organization over the nate over over the relationship of of Varric to the system. Moore seems to think the system is rational, and Varric thinks it's the the ultimate irrationality. Planning, in his view, is superior to randomness. We also through this learn that Varric has a desire to undo the system of Min Max, if possible. And we also got another theme here, which I think is throughout these chapters, and that's the loss of autonomy. You have it through f- several characters' attitudes. The f- most importantly, Bentley, who feels he's lost his autonomy by be give- being given this, this job, which he thinks unfairly. He feels he was tricked into agreeing to a fealty oath to Varric and not to the position of Quizmaster, which is what he initially wanted. So he loses his autonomy. He doesn't have any freedom. He, at one point, he talks about how he wants to spend a few days getting his house in order and moving his stuff and his friends say, no, 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 you have to go and work with Varric right away. He's going to want you right away. You don't have a choice in the matter. You're, you're his serf. We have Peleg, who's also very seemingly out of control. He's just a tool for other people, just an assassin, just an empty shell. And that's we're going to find on the next chapter that that's literally true, that he is just a, essentially a machine. Um Bentley loses his some of his control through alcohol, so alcohol becomes a, a bit of, of lack of, lack of control. And then Varric also feels he has no control. He feels the system of randomness takes away his autonomy, his ability to plan, his ability to be a, a proper direct agent. So all these different uh, characters feel a loss of control. In fact, none of the no one here really seems to be moving the ship, uh, maybe Varric the most, but even he reveals that he feels he's mostly an agent of, of the system. So um, a lot of important uh, setup here, uh, even though it all kind of takes place in, it's like a breakfast uh, or a, no, it's like a, he, he spends the night at his friends. He wakes up the next day and goes to this party. That's the, the, the plot of these three chapters, but it sets up a lot of important um, context for our characters. So thank you for listening. Uh, we'll look at chapters seven, eight, nine in the next episode, and um, we'll see where this novel is going. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time in the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Uh, if you want to leave a comment, please do so. Uh, subscribe, uh, share it. Um, I would love to hear your comments about this. So you can either comment directly on the the episode, or you can write me at hundredpagescast at gmail.com and I will get back to you or even share your comments online. If you have different opinions about these books, I, I would love to, or stories, I'd love to hear about them. So thank you for listening. She's in the hard way. I can feel it in my bones. She'll be making my day not another night alone. It's time for a windfall.
minute too soon I've been too long overdue Now I'm gonna shoot the moon I bet it all on good Run a bad luck Seven come eleven And she could be 